Revelation 20, and we're going to be looking once more at these verses that are the last five verses of chapter 20 before we head into 21, Lord willing, next week. These are terrifying verses, really. This is the last scene that happens in time and space as we know it. The last scene, the last little series of events. And in this scene at the judgment seat of God in the heavenly realm, history stands at the brink of eternity. The next thing is the new heaven and the new earth for eternity. Heaven and hell are are temporary. You know that, right? Heaven is the temporary abode of the righteous. Hell is the temporary abode of the wicked. And in this passage, hell itself is ended. Hades, Hades, it's it's called in this translation. That's That's the transliteration of the actual Greek word. And, and heaven is over. And it's in eternity that we're looking at. All people who have ever lived and died are there. Some say, we talked about this last time I was in this text, some say only believers are actually there witnessing the great white throne. Only unbelievers are there to be judged. But there's strong evidence that believers will be there in some fashion as well, though the outcome for them will be worlds apart from the outcome of unbelievers. But all people will be in resurrected bodies. This is the last event that takes place in history as we know it before the wonderful scenes of blissful eternity on the new earth in chapters 21 and 22. But for those who have rejected God, who have refused the Son, who have said no to the gospel, who have even hated God and mocked the people of God. And we have plenty of those in our culture. This last day is the most dreadful day one could possibly imagine. Because these unbelievers have been resurrected. They've been given new bodies, but for one purpose. And that is to vindicate the glory of God by having their sentence read out and their condemnation carried through of being cast fully conscious into a place of unspeakable horror, described as the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever. It's a a judgment so horrifying that it can only be termed in this text the second death. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't know how many of you have had the experience of being in a courtroom waiting for judgment to be handed down. I've been in a courtroom a few times as a pastor. For instance, I 
attended a hearing to be with a family whose son was being brought out of jail for sentencing. He wanted to be there to support them and to pray with them. And this young man I'm speaking of was not a hardened criminal, but this was a criminal case and he was looking at more jail time if they sentenced him. For that court and that judge, it might have been sort of business as usual, but for those of us waiting to hear the sentence and find out what was going to happen to this young man, to to hear his accusation read, for him to be evaluated. It it seemed like this ominous eternity and, and the minutes crawled by as we waited for him to come out and for that part of the day to get on with. I can imagine, based on experiences like this, what it must be like to stand as the accused at a higher court of the land where the consequences are much more dire And when the verdict is about to be handed down and the accused stands and you think through this and it fills you with a lot of healthy respect for the judicial process. But I don't really have the emotional capacity to plumb the sheer depth of angst and despair and dread that one will experience, that you will experience if you do not know Jesus Christ. If you will not listen to the gospel when you are brought before the greatest of all thrones of judgment, the great white throne. I'm not trying to be dramatic here in the sermon. I've heard some really dramatic, creative sermons on on the lake of fire, sometimes preached by pastors who sounded like they wish people were going there. Uh, You know, these colorful descriptions and so forth. But I just want to tell you right away, This is heavy stuff. This is for real. This is for keeps, what you're hearing here. This is real stuff. It is great, this white throne, in the sense that it is the highest throne over all of their thrones. It is the throne from which the universe is governed. It is a white throne because of the absolute holiness that we sang about this morning. Holiness and purity of the one sitting upon it. If you do not know Christ, you will stand before this throne. And then you will be brought forward before the one who is sitting on the throne, before the greatest of all judges, your creator. And at that point, I imagine, even though it talks about those standing before the throne, you will probably be prostrate. I imagine all strength would be gone from anybody having to be in this position. As you hear read out the works you did while living in the body that God gave to you to live in on the earth, knowing already that you are condemned, knowing that there is no hope. And at last, you hear the words spoken similar probably to those that Jesus warns us about in Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed one into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And knowing that this is God's divine word and that this witness is true, it ought to move us. We we shouldn't be able to read this passage without a rock in our stomach. If you're not a believer in Christ, you need to flee from the wrath to come. There is a striking finality in this text. This is the end of time as we know it. This is the day of reckoning. This is the final summing up. This is the day all of the books are balanced. The one seated on the throne is described 
as he from whose presence the earth and heaven, it says sky here, but it's like the, it, it literally is the earth and the heaven flee away from his presence and there was found no place for him, uh, for them. I don't think that's merely a metaphorical expression that creates in us this awe for the divine presence. It's at least that. But it also suggests that at this point, heaven and earth are actually fleeing away. Preparing the way for verse 1 of chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. So all that remains, all that matters at this moment, at the end of history, at the end of time as we know it, is this throne and this judgment and this God and this Christ. All earthly works and rewards and accolades and applause and pleasures and wealth and time and invested uh, time in career and family and all the things that we all do to build our lives and to plan for the future, it all comes to an end. It's gone. And all the important news stories and all of the great monuments and the great literature and the great performances and all of the evidence of something great that we have achieved... If history hasn't swept it all away by then, at least now there is nothing left except that which was done for Christ. Here at this great white throne of judgment, this is all that matters to anyone now at this point. And whether you know that you are safe in Christ or doubt whether you know Christ, or maybe you're consciously rejecting the idea of Christ as Savior, You should be warned. We all should be warned by these words. They confront us with the sobering reality of this finality, these final events that punctuate the end of all time. And we need to take a closer look at these events so that the full impact of these words can admonish us and give us wisdom and tell us how to live. What are these events? I mean, this is one great event, but there's really four events packaged in here. Four events that are final at the end of all time that exhort us. And here's the first one, the final resurrection, the final resurrection. The souls of those who leave their bodies go to two temporary places I've already mentioned. Unbelievers to the temporary place of the wicked, known as hell or Hades in our text, or believers to the temporary place known as heaven to be with the Lord. But one day... Every person who exists only as a disembodied soul will receive a new body. And this is known as resurrection. And in this last part of Revelation 20, we are witnessing the second resurrection, or we could say the final resurrection. John says in verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And then if you go down to verse 13, it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. This is a reference to the resurrection. These are not disembodied souls who are standing before the throne. In fact, the Greek word translated standing is related to the Greek word for resurrection. And John uses three expressions that are intended to show us that no one escapes being there 
at this resurrection. All are present and accounted for. John says, I saw the dead, great and small. Those who have strength and authority and riches in this life, people we might envy right now, they have popularity and and everybody knows who they are and they seem to have everything in the world at their feet. And those who have nothing, those we'll never hear about, those who are slaves in this life, they're the, the small people and then everyone in between And it will not matter in that day what you did on earth, how well known you were, how little you regarded, whether you got a 4.0 in in your degree or not, how many great things you accomplished, how many people praised you or remembered you when you were gone, or whether nobody even knew you existed. God's throne is the great equalizer. Then John says in verse 13, the sea gave up literally handed over the dead who were in it. And this is intended, I believe, to show that all people over the earth, no matter where they died, no matter where they were, and and, and thinking about being drowned in the sea, especially in this culture, was like they're gone. And the sea is thought of as this great depth that they couldn't ever see the bottom of in that time period. And those bodies all over the earth, no matter where they died, they will be recovered and brought to life to stand before God's throne. And then, as if to make sure we understand that absolutely everybody will be there, John says, death and Hades gave up, handed over the dead that were in them. Death and Hades are personified in Revelation. You might remember that. They're turned into characters. Remember in Revelation 6, 8, the rider on the pale horse is named Death and Hades follows after him. It's an ultimate and poetic way to say that anyone who has ever died will be resurrected to stand before the throne. The Bible describes two kinds of resurrections, though. Going all the way back to Daniel 7, if we can, just for a second. Uh, Actually, uh, Daniel 7, verses 1 and 2, the angel speaking to Daniel speaks of this time because he says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This is, I I believe, Daniel 12, actually. I think I have the reference on there wrong. Everybody uh, whose name shall be found written in the book. And then he says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. By the time we come to the great white throne of judgment, those who have trusted Christ will have already been resurrected. They have already been awakened to everlasting life as Daniel 12 puts it. They're mentioned, for example, here in Revelation 20. If we go back to verses 4 and 5, John is referring specifically here to those who were martyred by the beast and the false prophet during the tribulation period. And he says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, the one he's talking about at first, where, where the, the, those who were in Christ raised. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, which is the lake of fire, has no power. You want to be in the first resurrection. You do not want to be in the second resurrection. It is a first resurrection because it takes place before the final resurrection of the great white throne. And this first resurrection happens in stages. For example, Paul describes this resurrection, I think, when he talks about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first, 
then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's why they call it the rapture. We receive our resurrection bodies without having to go through death. And so will we ever be with the Lord. This is also part of the first resurrection. It's a resurrection of believers who are in Christ today. But the second resurrection, the last resurrection, is only for those who do not know God. Because once they have died and gone to hell, and by the way, once they are in the lake of fire, they would have chosen rather to be in hell forever than be in the lake of fire. They die and they are in hell. And no matter when they died in human history, some of them have been there thousands and thousands of years. They remain until the day they are resurrected for one purpose, and that is to face the great white throne. That's the second resurrection. That means that there is no one who surrounds that throne of the people who have ever lived on the face of the earth, who have not yet been raised from the dead. And heaven and earth is gone. Life on earth is over. There are no more births, no more living out one's life, no more time to make a decision about their eternity. This is the final resurrection. Whatever you have decided about Christ, once you pass from this life, your decision is sealed, your vote is cast, and this final resurrection is the time when those decisions will be made known if you do not know Jesus Christ. But not only is this the final resurrection, it's also the final record. The final record. You know, every time we come to the end of a school semester, I have to turn in final grades for students. And during the semester, students complete work that are put in the syllabus. It's like this contract we have going in the classroom. And, and the students try to keep up with the class. And if they fall behind, if their papers are due the 10th week of the semester and they run into problems because they didn't listen to the instructions about doing things early and so forth that they hear all the time, depending on the nature of the course and the circumstances, I can give them sometimes what I uh, call a grace period. That's a period that is past the deadline, but a student can turn in the assignment without penalty. But I can offer a grace period only for so long, not because... I'm, you know, not a good guy only to, to an extent, okay? But there's a thing called the registrar's office. And they want the final grades. That's why they, it's a college. That's why it's a school. That's why it's a seminary. And that records office has to have the grades so that they can reward the student accordingly. And so there's a final record, a final grade. I remember a semester several years ago when I had volunteered to teach an undergraduate course and there were four students with several outstanding assignments. There were, I knew they could have, if they just did the assignments, they could, they could pass the course. And I said, you know, you guys, I, I don't want to fail you in this course. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an extra week. You, you just get them done this week. This is your grace period. And they all thanked me for it. And two of them got busy and did the work. Two of them still did not do the work. Consequently, two of them failed and two of them passed because the grades were called for. The record had to be finalized and they had made their decision. And by comparison, we are living in a grace period right now. Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The time to repent is now. The time to, re- to, to come to Christ is now because one day that record will stand. There's a finality about it. The passage talks about 
books, literally rolls or scrolls. They're records. John says in verse 12 that he saw books opened, literally rolls opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in this final record, in the books, according to what they had done. And verse 15 speaks of someone's name not being found written in the book of life. It's the same book spoken of in Daniel 12 that I referenced a few minutes ago, where it says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. What are these books? What are these, what, what are these roles? They represent the full knowledge possessed by God. God doesn't need scrolls to remind him. Now, who were you? Okay, let's see. Oh, here, here's your name. Here's your, here are your works. Now I've got it. No, God knows everything. He knows everything past, everything present, and everything future. He doesn't need books to remember information of who belongs to him and who doesn't. The scrolls are for the benefit of everyone else who is not God. The scrolls are a reality check for us. They are a reminder that God knows what is true. He knows what we've done and what we haven't done. He knows who we really are. He knows who truly belongs to him. The many books, as I, we explained this last time, we, went into, we already went through this text one time to look at one particular idea, but uh, when we visited this text last time, uh, these books refer to the works done by those who have lived on God's earth, having been created in God's image. And the book of life is a record of those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. This book of life is the same mentioned back in Revelation 13, 8, where we find its full title, where he says, all who dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That's the full title of this book. And in Revelation 21, verse 7, in uh, describing the new Jerusalem, John says, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. This is the book that identifies those who have believed God through the Son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for their sins. This is the book that you want to have your name written in. Now, I want to talk about one thing about this book that can make us feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe you already noticed it. Revelation 13.8 implies that the names in this book of life have been written since the foundation of the world. I wasn't going to ignore that, by the way. You see that? Because the text refers to those whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Literally, the original text says, from the foundation of the world. There's a little discrepancy here in the ESV. I'm going to show you this. Both, both verses I'm showing you in, in a second are, are identical in the Greek. I mean, I mean, almost identical. Same prepositions, everything. In, in one verse, the ESV says before the foundation of the earth, and the other, it says from the foundation of, of the world. I'm not really sure why. It might even be a typo. Who knows? I'll have to report it this week and see, 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 see why uh, they have it that way. But Revelation 17, 8, on the bottom there, is, is the second one. It, it says almost the same thing in the Greek language, and it refers to the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And that just simply means when God created the world, time began as we know it. And from that point on, 
at least from that point on. It could have been before as well. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. But from that point on, the names are written there. The implication is whatever names are written in this book of life have been there from the beginning, the beginning of time. And now this book is open, the scroll is rolled back at the end of time. And you might ask, can names get added in along the way? I mean, names that were not there at the beginning of time, but now they're there at the end of time. And the answer to that question is, I don't know. But there doesn't seem to be any indication in the grammar of these verses of that happening. The names here are described as having been written or not written from the foundation of the world. So all that we know is that there are names that have not been written from the foundation of the world, the beginning of time, and by implication, names that have been written since the beginning of time. This is why Paul can refer to believers in Philippians uh, 4 or 3 as those whose names are written in the book of life. But there's a tension here that bothers us sometimes. It, it may bother you too. It's the idea that the names that are written in the book of the Lamb that was slain that will be read at the end of time were already recorded at the beginning of time. And remember, these books are for our benefit. They represent the mind of God. But to some, this implies that God already has his mind made up who is going to be saved and who is going to perish. So some have come up with the idea, well, maybe, maybe everyone's name who has ever been born is written in this book of life. And then if they die without trusting Christ, their name gets erased. I mean, after all, in Revelation 3, 5, Jesus promises believers earlier here, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name, rather, before my father and before his angels. So if you read that verse in a certain way, it could look like you could have your name erased and maybe God just erases people who don't end up getting saved. Now, you can think of it in terms like this if it makes you feel better about the situation, but really what Revelation 3, 5 is saying is simply that Jesus will never stop guaranteeing us of eternal life. He never will. Our names have been in the book of life since the beginning of time. And our names will be in the book of life at the end of time. It's a promise for us. And the reason we know that we can conquer and that we can endure for Christ and do his will and continue to follow him is because we know our names are written there. In the book. You see, the reason the Bible frames it this way is for our assurance and our comfort as believers. The whole reason Jesus Christ asked his apostle John to write to the church to begin with the book of Revelation is to give us this assurance. Like Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 19, he says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Book or no book. The Lord knows who belongs to it. Uh, God knows who belongs to him. Guess what? God can't help it. He's an omniscient God. He knows things. He knows everything, past, present, and future. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that God shows us from the foundation of the world. Not only does God know events before time begins, he knows his own before time begins. I know this may sound confusing to some and 
I'm the first to admit, I, I don't know how to fully explain this. I've never have been able to. But the question will inevitably come back, well, how then can we know that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world? I think we do know the answer to that question, don't we? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let God worry about timing. Recognize your need for forgiveness from a holy God and embrace the only way to know that forgiveness by embracing the one who died for your sins, who took your place, who rose again from the dead to give you new life to anyone who receives Christ. It's new life. It's eternal life. And realize that you're, you're coming for forgiveness to a holy God who is infinite, whose wisdom and knowledge we will never be able to understand. Of course there are things about God that are going to baffle us. He's God. After all, we're going to be able to say so many times about God, how can this be? How can he do that? Why does he think this way? That's going to be the case because we're worshiping a God that is so far beyond us, and yet he loves us enough to make everything possible for us not to face this final judgment. According to the promise of God himself, none of us who know Christ need wonder if our name is written in that book. In fact, it's been there all along. And if you do not know Christ today, I, for one, would plead with you, and many more would do, too, do the same here. We who know Christ, we would plead with you, make certain that your name is in that book today. Because once you pass from this life, your appointment before God's great white throne is established. There's a finality about this throne. It's the final resurrection. It's the final record. There's another finality, though. It's also the final evaluation based on that record. These books that represent the knowledge of God are used to evaluate what judgment a person should receive standing before that throne. Revelation 20 uh, in 12 and 13 is where we need to focus on for this idea. It says in verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then we have the identical statement down in verse 13. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. I think when you speak to most people uh, about what is going to happen when they die, what eternity is going to be like, a lot of them have this, this idea, and, and some religions actually systematize this, that when, when they get to heaven, uh, you know, God is going to... Uh, weigh their good works against their bad works and see that the good works outweigh the bad. The scale is going to tip, you know, and some of them are, you know, hoping it doesn't tip too slow, but eventually, you know, the, the, the good is going to outweigh the bad and, and God's going to say, oh, you can come in because you did more good works than you did bad. For, with, it shows that we all have a sense of justice. I wonder where that came from, right? We all have a sense of, of what is good and what is bad and what is right and is wrong somewhere. And, and we might think that way in our minds. Some people are in despair. They're like, I know I don't don't have enough good works to outweigh my bad works. That's actually an easier person to talk with about the gospel. Uh, somebody who knows they're a sinner, that's an easy start. Someone who has to be convinced, that's a harder conversation. You know, it's true that people created in God's image by God's common grace can do good things. It's a shame sometimes when they do more good things than people who are actually believers. They can be kind they can be helpful. They can come to someone's rescue. They can even give their life for somebody else. 
I praise God for our military where men and women have done this very thing. But whatever a person might have done that is read out of that scroll at the great white throne, whatever the works are done that are read out of the scrolls, if indeed our works are read out, as we talked about last time, whatever is written in those books, it is not what is in those books that matter. That's what condemns the unbelievers. But at the end of the day, what matters is what Christ has done for us. It's his work for us. That is why it is imperative that we are in the other scroll, the one scroll. Which is to say, it is not that we have our works, good or bad, in the books that are open, but it is whether or not we have Christ's work for us in the other book. All the other books could be read. Some of the lives are probably going to be longer than others. Some people have more works read out than others. But in the end, verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final evaluation. And the one question is, are we covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Are we in him? Have we truly embraced the loving death of Christ that God, the judge, provided for us? Are we truly following Christ? And I would say this morning, you need to make certain that you are because there is a sobering finality about everything we're seeing here. There's a final resurrection, which means your decision is sealed. And there's a final record because your work is over. And there's a final evaluation because your life is weighed in the balance. And there's only one decision that matters, and it's whether or not you trusted Jesus Christ. And finally, there is the final judgment. In other words, the final condemnation, the punishment itself for those who do not know Christ. There's also, by God's grace, those who are passed into life. But notice this text does not focus on this. It focuses on those who are condemned. And then there's two chapters that focus on those who are living. John describes what he sees here in verse 14. He says, Then death and Hades were cast, thrown into the lake of fire. And that seems to be a way of saying that these characters, death and Hades, these personifications of death and hell, are done away with. Death and hell itself dies. They are no more. All that matters now is this lake of fire. He says this is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death is physical death. We leave our earthly bodies. There's a second death, a punishment almost too horrible to describe. And yet John assures us in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Back in chapter 19, verse 20, you remember the beast and the false prophet who deceived the world during the tribulation period are cast alive into the lake of fire, fully conscious into the lake of fire. And then here in Revelation chapter 20, back in verse 10, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Then in verse 14 in our text, death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. And finally, all people created by God who have refused to turn to God are cast into the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? I said earlier, I'm not going to be all dramatic about this, but I, I, we have to understand some of the facts about this. We have to appreciate as much as we can what is happening here. The lake of fire is mentioned six times 
in Revelation. Once in chapter 19, four times here in chapter 20, once again it's referenced in chapter 21. Three times it's called the lake of fire. In chapter 19 it is called the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. In chapter 21, it is called the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And then up in verse 10 of chapter 20, it is called the lake of fire and sulfur. Sulfur has been associated with God's wrath ever since Sodom and Gomorrah. Sulfur burns hotter than normal fire. It gives off this acidic gas with this putrefying stench. And people ask the question a lot about hell. When you hear debates about the reality of hell, people will often ask this question. Is the fire... In the lake of fire, real fire. And my answer this morning is, yes, it's real fire. In fact, it's more real than any fire we have ever known. Everything in the world that we inherit is like a shadow compared to the real world that we are going to. In fact, God has allowed us to know about fire here so that we might get a little bit of an idea about what real fire is over there in the world yet unseen. And people will hear their judgment pronounced and be cast into this great lake burning with fire and stench and intensity, and it lasts forever. Revelation 20.10 says that in the lake of fire and sulfur, the devil and the beast and the false prophet will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So gruesome and loathsome is this place of final torment that Jesus warned about this several times in the Gospels. In Mark 9, I'll just look at this one passage. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And I believe he's talking about the eternal lake of fire here in this passage. He says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You remember from your own reading of the Gospels that Jesus said like things, things like this all the time. If, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, in other words, if, if you're going to face eternal punishment because of something your hand has done, cut it off. Cut off your foot. Pluck out your eye. Jesus isn't trying to be morbid. He's pleading with people, you do whatever it takes, but you do not want to end up in this place, a place of unquenchable fire. The phrase in verse 48, I think, is highly instructive. You see that? Where their worm does not die. This is actually language borrowed from Isaiah 66, verse 24, the last, the last verse of Isaiah. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, God says. <coughs> For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Some theologians believe that the worm here suggests eternal decay. Just as those whose names are in the book of life will enjoy endless life and fulfillment as they have never known it, so the wicked will suffer the antithesis of eternal life, which is endless decay and despair 
as they have never known it, separated from anything good, anything lovely, anything joyous, anything comforting, knowing only perpetual sadness and loneliness and pain and the sense of indescribable loss and guilt and regret, screaming in torment without end forever. As Jesus warned many times, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we should be rightly alarmed by this. And I hope we're moved by it. Sometime in the near future, I want to probe the question about why this torment for those who have rejected God. Why does Satan even exist? Why is deception in the world at all? There's some really good biblical answers to those questions. Because I think when we understand the the necessary holiness and goodness of God that is the essence of life, then the hideous attack of sin against the very God who loved the world and even gave his son for the world, a sin that is the essence of death, then we may begin to see more clearly why this must be so. But what is still hard to wrap my mind around, I'll tell you this, one other thing, is is that one day when we who know Christ are finally with the Lord in glory in our redeemed state, able to think with the Uh, about about the glory of the Lord in in our renewed, unfallen hearts and minds. Think about that. We can't even imagine it. Thinking like God actually thinks. With unfallen hearts and minds. It's still something I can't wrap my mind around to think that we will actually look upon the punishment of the unrighteous with satisfaction and joy. Because we know that our perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly good Heavenly Father declares it must be so. This sobering finality of the last events at the end of time ought to instruct us. They ought to admonish us. They ought to warn us. There is something here in this place in in this text that rivets our attention on what matters. And if you're hearing any of this this morning, if you're somebody here in the congregation, in the overflow, somebody watching online, and you do not know Christ, if your spiritual destiny does not change, you will be standing at this great white throne of judgment. This is just as true and just as real as anything else in the word of God. And that day will arrive all too soon. Hearing your sentence read out and being cast alive into this place of outer darkness that even though I've tried to describe it this morning, it pales in comparison to what it actually is. In all seriousness, you need to run away as fast as you can from whatever arrogant philosophies or weak excuses or arguments that you have used to deprive yourself of the gospel of Christ and coming to this this point of deception. You need to get away from that. Or whatever person it is you're trying to impress, maybe including yourself, and you need to throw yourself on the mercy of, of Christ and to know the loving forgiveness of God. It might not be a hand or a foot or an eye that is keeping you out of the lake of, or keeping you uh, uh, out of the uh, coming to, to the gospel. It might be 
pride or the fear of man or someone's opinion, or perhaps your heart has simply become hardened against the idea of Christ. Whatever it is, cast it away from you and turn to Christ and know God's givenness of salvation and do not put it off because God loves you and sent his son to die for you and he wants you to know him. God is not willing that any should perish. This grieves the heart of God. And what is more, at Gateway Baptist Church, every time you come here on a Sunday, you are surrounded, and I say this with confidence, you're surrounded by people who love you and so many of them could help you come to Christ and they wouldn't judge you at all. They would rejoice with you. They would be weeping with you because we ourselves have been rescued by God's grace. None of us deserves to be here. None of us deserves to have our name in that book. Grab hold of one of us before the day is gone. Ask your your believing friend to talk. Ask your Sunday school teacher or your group leader. It's always a really good day to come and to be saved. And for those of us who know the Lord, one of the reasons I think God reveals to us this final end of unrepentant sinners, not just because we know the vindication is real, but I think we understand how much we have been saved from. And that one day God is going to vindicate us like this. And I think he reveals his judgment so that it might help us think more seriously about what really matters. What do we do with our time and our money and our influence? Really, what really is going to matter someday except something related to this judgment? And I think he reveals it to us that it might make us more urgent about sharing the gospel. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. Human judgment is a serious matter. And the fear of civil and state and federal courts, I think, does a pretty good job instructing us and guiding us into what is right as citizens of a country. But how much more this sobering, final, awful, righteous judgment of God on his holy throne should shepherd our hearts to cling to our loving Lord who alone can save us in light of his soon return. Father, thank you for...